is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to the final episode of our summer 2018 miniseries, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians, and we're just calling this our wrap-up episode, for lack of a better title. Um, So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, YouTube adaptations of Victorian novels, and uh, then just as as the title indicates, wrap up our miniseries. I think wrap-up is a perfectly good title. It just explains what's happening. (laughs) It's just very pragmatic. At the end of the summer, we're facing the beginning of the term. Straightforward is the way to go, I guess. (laughs) And as you can tell, we, uh, Eleanor and I, have gotten back together in the recording time slot to bring you this final episode. So after a summer of weird schedules and solo episodes, it's... Nice to be back with, uh, back co-hosting instead of flying solo, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think we were hoping when we were in the same time zone for about a week to sort something out, but life doesn't happen like that, does it? So as far as I know, this genre sort of starts, or takes off anyway, with Pemberley Digital's Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Um, so again, Jane Austen pops up. In our discussion of Victorian adaptation. So it, um, Pemberley Digital's The Lizzie Bennet Diaries was super successful, continues to be as far as I know, um, and combined the YouTube vlog phenomenon where people would just sort of use YouTube videos as diaries of their daily lives with classic literature. And so many of these adaptations are following or playing with that format. From my brief research, Austin seems to really dominate the genre, and you can kind of see why. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've already talked about how it dominates adaptations in general, but it really works for the kind of monologue of feelings approach. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, and if you want to see some of the most classic um, and best funded adaptations. Pemberley Digital is the way to go. So they have the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, they have um, an adaptation of Little Women, they have one called Frankenstein MD, and so all of these are kind of neo-Victorian or neo-19th century adaptations of classic novels. Yeah, I'm just gonna drop a link to that in the show notes. It is, as you might expect, pembleydigital.com, but... Let's make it super easy for you. Yeah, so none of the actual adaptations we're going to talk to you about today are from Pemberley Digital. They are from a variety of sources and have various budgets from being very well-funded and therefore well-produced to being sort of crowdfunded or um, just people with a digital recorder um, playing around. Uh, But all of them are, are pretty great, I think. Yeah, and I think when they don't have 
that kind of funding, it really, there's more of a similitude towards people just blogging. Mm -hmm. Lizzie Bennett maybe isn't going to have a whole massive budget to blog. Right. (laughs) I wonder if maybe, (laughs) sorry, kind of been a mental tangent of whether Lizzie Bennett is the Zoella of YouTube adaptations. I don't know. Um, they also have one on Jane Austen's Emma, and and I think that one, like Emma, would have had a huge budget for blogging, vlogging. Oh yeah, she would have had like paid editors. Yeah. So the first one we're going to talk to you about today is Middlemarch, an adaptation of George Eliot's Middlemarch, obviously. Um, and I watched it a while ago. Eleanor, you said you're currently watching it. Do you want to do... Yeah, it's... um, So this ties in really nicely because obviously Middlemarch is one of the TV series that I focused on. And I think this is a really kind of lovely companion piece to that. So I had not heard of the Middlemarch YouTube series until Courtney told me about it. So I've spent my afternoon furiously watching the first 10, 15 episodes. Really enjoying it so far. Dorothea becomes a... STEM student, Celia isn't her sister, she's her roommate. Sir James becomes Jamie, a non-binary student. That's one thing that I really like about these YouTube series, is, and this comes up in another one we're going to talk about, that the sexual and gender politics gets a real update. Mm-hmm. Castlebon, we were talking before we started recording, really appreciate that Castlebon in this adaptation is a PhD student. And, and one of those um, stereotypical insufferable ones, so I think it's a really um, apt adaptation move on on their part yeah for sure he is a phd student who if he's at a conference is definitely going to have comments rather than questions Mm -hmm. and is one of those i don't want to malign our peers but one of those grad students who dates undergrads because they can kind of lord it over them rather than dating an intellectual peer yeah which really captures elliot's castle I want to give credit to my peers, my close and long distance cohort, and that I've never um, known any grad students who would do that. That I just happen to have the luck of being surrounded by a bunch of brilliant and very kind and ethical people, I think. But they do exist. Yeah, I've only come across one or two in my time. So I think it's the very visible minority. Yeah, and actually a really uh, important conversation to think about considering recent academic uh, Me Too movement type things that are going on, which I don't want to get into here, but it's all over social media right now. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a part that I laughed out loud at and had to explain to my office mates, because at one point the Dorothea character, Dot, um, says, wow, he's a grad student. It's like like something like it's so fun to date a grad or so exciting to date a grad student. And I was just like, no, it absolutely is not. (laughs) You want to be around someone who's exhausted all the time and cranky from their dissertation? (laughs) Sure. And who occasionally will just start ranting about their subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Jamie points out that, yeah, and he's also 25 to her 19 and there's some uh, power dynamics there. Yeah. This quickie. But it's a super fun adaptation and I really like, I think I'm maybe halfway through currently, I really like their version of Will, who is a woman in the uh, adaptation. But still an artist, which is great. Yeah. It's a really fun twist on the book. 
Yeah, I'm just realizing that I probably spoiled it for you, but actually, I mean... Yeah, I might have spoiled it for you, saying the... she's a... Oh no, I already know she's an artist. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if if you have spoiled it, I'm not... I'm oblivious as to what you've spoiled. Okay, good. Sorry. I mean, like, it's not really a spoiler because it's just following the plot of Middlemarch, basically, like, the, the, the romantic plot of Middlemarch, so, I mean, you probably saw everything coming yeah i've not got to the bit and this is a spoiler alert for the book which i maybe expect spoiler alerts going in that i've not got to the bit where they handled the breakup between dot and casabon mm. i'm wondering how they handle that because obviously in the book he dies yeah so i'm yeah excited to see how that goes down mm-hmm. the other thing that they've changed from the book that i wasn't sure initially i watched the first first episode that these characters are involved in and I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about the gender-bent Mary Garth becoming Max, but I actually love it. Mm. Yeah, I think... It works so well. No, no, no. I think it was my favourite part um, of the adaptation. At first I was, yeah, kind of dubious about it, but I really enjoyed it in the end. Yeah, that relationship is just as wholesome as it is in the book. Mm -hmm. And I think, interestingly, for me, I feel like... The characters who feel closest to their book counterparts are Billy and Max, the two gender-bent characters. Mm-hmm. They really have the essence of uh, Will and Mary somehow. Yeah. I think, yeah, they did a very good job capturing kind of the the spirit of the novel. Yeah. I, I want to say the intent of the novel, but then, yeah, that's a can of worms. I was kind of... <laughs> yeah. I was also kind of dubious at the start because obviously it's Middlemarch is the story of English provincial life mm-hmm. and then it becomes a place in Connecticut and it becomes an American college instead of an English rural town. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's being British, but I'm always a bit on edge waiting to see what happens. But it works really well. I really love how they have merch. I love their merch that they rock. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, like this is an example of a, obviously a really well-funded project, uh-huh. but they have like two colleges. Do they have two colleges or just one? Lowick College in Middlemarch. <sighs> yeah, and then is. there's like a nearby community college in another town or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's one thing they've done really well. I basically just rambled about how much I like this series so far, so definitely recommend it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so another big one. Have you watched this one? I think you recommended it to me. I have watched this one. This this is the first one I ever watched. Mm. This was my introduction to adaptations. I watched it a couple of years ago, so I'm not as fresh. So Okay, yeah. I recently recently watched this. It's Okay, so we can do it the other way around. Yeah. It's a Sorry, you can introduce the title and then I'll describe it. Sure. So this is one that, like I said, it's the first YouTube adaptation I ever watched. And I hadn't actually heard of the novel before I watched the adaptation, which I think is the case for a lot of people. I read the book this year and then I watched the adaptation, so... Oh, that's interesting. I still haven't read the book. (laughs) I know about it and I know the basic plot, but I haven't read it. So this is Carmilla. I don't know if it's just the circles that I move in. But I feel like it's one of the most well-known series. Yeah, it seems really, really popular um, beyond like nerdy 
book-loving people watching it for reasons that we'll get into. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of branched out and become really popular with the queer community, especially more generally. Mm-hmm. That's how I heard mm-hmm. about it from friends saying, have you heard of this thing? You'll enjoy it because it's Victorian. Yeah, um, it's great. So I actually want to talk about um, Carmilla the novel it's actually a novella it's really short um it does have people um always say oh you know carmilla it's uh gay vampires which it really does have um very clear homosocial homoerotic themes they're not super hidden um so (laughs) i think that the the adaptation becoming a hit in the queer community is um sort of it just makes a lot of sense. But this, um, like most YouTube adaptations of 19th century literature, is uh, set on a college campus. I have not seen the movie. It just came out, but there are four seasons and a movie um, set on this sort of supernatural college campus in Canada. Um, so 21st century Canada. Um, it starts with Laura going to college. Her um, her roommate quickly goes missing and they realize there's vampires on campus and, um, Carmilla becomes Laura's roommate, um, and hijinks ensue as Laura tries to, like, not be vampire food from episode to episode. But they also have an evil dean to battle and various, um, other monsters and warring, uh, fraternities or roaring Greek life organizations, sororities and fraternities. So I think it, it, it takes sort of the social political background of the original novel and uh, translates it beautifully into the social political life of a 21st century college campus. Yeah, so this is one of the ones where um, I kind of gestures towards it where the sexual and gender politics get updated. Mm-hmm. And this is the same because in the novella, from my reading of the synopsis i've linked the so i've linked it as it appeared in the deep blue the periodical in the show notes which is open Mm. access available to everyone i'm definitely going to need to read it but it's not particularly long is it it's no it's quite short i was really surprised yeah so it shouldn't take too long but from my understanding of the synopsis carmilla is a very prototypical predatory lesbian character and the homosocial aspects are very Mm -hmm. threatening yeah they're kind of weirdly threatening in that they're not always like the characters don't perceive them as a threat until the end just the reader does if that makes sense the so the narration is sort of a dramatic irony going on that makes that tries to force the reader into a very suspicious position yeah because in the series it's entirely different and carmilla and the other protagonist laura end up falling for each other and it's kind of them against the odds rather than laura and her father against carmilla right um the father does have a really fun role in the series and just eventually very supported um yeah but so as with the novel um carmilla and her mother are sort of initially positioned as villains and her mother stays villainous but carmilla uh is 
kind of redeemed, but kind of more um, just becomes this sort of gray anti-hero who can be thought of as lovable in a 21st century context. Yeah, because you get a bit of backstory, which is that Camilla has turned against her mother in the is it 18th or 19th century. Do they? I'm not sure if they tell you mm. when, but a couple of hundred years ago. She's turned against her mother because she fell deeply in love with a girl called Elle, mm-hmm. a human girl who her mother then turned against her by saying, Camilla's a vampire. This is who she is. You don't want to be with her. And apparently the show creator thought of Elle as the Laura character in the novella. Mm, interesting. That's an interesting tie-in. Yeah. One thing that I really like about this, just really technically, is that it's a static camera in one room. Mm-hmm. They work around that in really interesting ways. Yeah. I um. So f- in terms of form, th- these YouTube adaptations tend to be really um, self-aware of of the vlog format um, and to do innovative things. And I think Carmela does it really well. So um, it becomes this sort of reporting to the campus community through the camera. Um, and then, like, forgetting that the camera's on and living in the background um, so that we see different parts of the story in different ways and, and in different um, narrative styles. Yeah, this is something that the Middlemarch series does nicely as well, because the first time you see Fred's character, he's messing around with the camera and you can just see his chin. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of a lovable idiot. Yeah. I mean, and all of these series deal with the fact that, like, it's weird to live your life in front of a camera and sort of bring in various outside reasons that they have to or that they keep doing it. Yeah. Okay, so just a couple more to mention. Have you seen this next one, Eleanor? I haven't seen any of the others. Okay. Woefully ignorant on this matter. Okay, so just gonna move quickly through the next two. Um, There is a YouTube adaptation of Jane Eyre. It's called The Autobiography of Jane Eyre. It's a neo-Victorian take- on Charlotte Bronte's novel, um, really changes the ending. Uh, Jane is in nursing school, decides that's not the life for her, and becomes a nanny to um, Mr. Rochester for his niece, or his ward. I can't remember, it might be his niece in the adaptation. Um, So not set on a college campus, still does this sort of single camera style. but I think they had they like lost the actor for Mr. Rochester near the end and so really oh. changed the ending. Um, in a way they sort of try to spin as feminist and it kind of works, I guess, but it's really not satisfying in terms of narrative. Um, so sort of critical or reviews, YouTube reviews sort of fizzle about this one instead of it's not as well-beloved as the other ones we've discussed. Right, this is one that I I have to admit I started watching and it didn't. Yeah, I I don't think they made as compelling of a a translation of this story into the 21st century, or maybe it's just a more difficult story to translate into the 21st century because, I mean, Jane Eyre has some weird dynamics, but... Yeah, it is a very complex story to translate and i also think i don't know if jane herself is very likable as a protagonist 
and that causes issues when you have to have one character who's kind of a main focus like laura is in carmilla or dot is in middlemarch it really helps when they're compelling and likable mm-hmm. yeah and i think they just cut out the whole bertha thing but i'm not 100 percent sure it's been a year or two since i've watched it and i just sort of vaguely remember yeah i was wondering how they cope with typhoid and bertha <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they do, really. Um, yeah. That's one way to do it. Sorry, go ahead. But I don't want to... I No, I was just going to say I don't want to talk ill of this series because, like I say, I didn't really watch it and it's just because I am a grad student with a lot of things to do. Yeah. So yeah. I have to... If I'm going to invest time in something, it needs to be great. Yeah, I'm unfortunately a completionist most of the time and so I have a hard time stopping once I've started something. But, um, yeah, like adaptations are sort of personal, you know, it's a very personal taste of whether you feel like it's successful or not. And I think because I'm so much a fan of the Brontes, it's hard for me to, uh, I'm, I'm probably extra critical of Bronte adaptations. So yeah, your miles may vary with this. And then the final one is one that I super, super love. It's called Mina Murray's Journal, another neo-Victorian adaptation, this time of Dracula. They call it a Vladaptation for vlog adaptation, but it also works as a Vlad the Impaler adaptation. (laughs) Um, Vlad the Impaler, if you're not into Dracula, is supposedly the real Dracula. There's only one season so far. I think they've been trying to find funding for a second one, but it's an amazing first season. Um, Like most of... I think the best YouTube adaptations, it does some gender bending, it does some um, updating of the uh, sexual orientation and, and relationships in the story. Um, Mina Murray is the protagonist here, which I, if, if you've ever talked to me about Dracula, you know that's my sort of soapbox, is that Mina Murray is the protagonist and should be considered the protagonist of Dracula, if there is one at all. Um, she's the character who does the most growing and whose actions most significantly shape the story outside of um, Dracula, I think. Nothing could work without her anyway. But, um, so, let's see. It's not Jonathan. <laughs> Jonathan is so passive. Like, he, stuff happens to him that propels the story, but he doesn't, like, actively, without someone else's direction, change the story. Um Yeah. I guess the other real contender is Van Helsing, but he just doesn't appear for very much. He's always he doesn't have his own uh, sections. It, anyway, I'm getting into my yeah rabbit trail of ranting, which I could do for hours. Um, so let's see. Let's see, Lucy is Mina's roommate and has a huge crush on Mina. Uh, Jonathan is a boyfriend. And um, Mina has Mina actually travels to Transylvania for work purposes. So not set on a college campus, but the, the the characters are more or less college age. Yeah, and I think that's a that's something that carries through, which is true to. I mean, a lot of the books obviously follow the Buildings Roman tradition and are about people. Mm-hmm. of this kind of age so it makes sense but it also is one of the reasons they work really well for these adaptations, to use their term yeah yeah because i mean who else is going to be vlogging really 
20-somethings, teenagers. YouTube is a really good venue for these adaptations because it really mimics. It feels like a really genuine and, I, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for, accurate translation of how Victorians would consume a lot of this media into 21st century terms. So just as they're getting all the year round and reading their three chapters of Mm -hmm. Great Expectations or whatever, we are getting logging into YouTube and watching a 10-15 minute mini episode. And a lot of them are shorter. I think Carmilla, the episodes are anywhere from three to seven minutes. Yeah, yeah. But definitely that serial format carries over really well, as you pointed out. Yeah, like it works for it works for TV series, but I think it's somehow more accurate in YouTube adaptations mm. because it's almost like a snippet view. Yeah, um, I've just remembered one that I left off the list, and it's an adaptation of uh, Alexandra Dumas' The Three Musketeers. It's great. There are multiple seasons, so this is put out by Kinda TV. It's called All for One. It- the, the main character is called Dorothy Castlemore, and she arrives at Duma College for freshman year and wants to join a sorority called Mu Sigma Theta, um, <laughs> which is sort of like a family tradition to join this sorority. And um, so it, it plays around with all the characters in Three Musketeers, um, but makes them all women and with various sexual orientations and gender um, one character is a trans man, uh, which is amazing. I really loved the way they represented that character. So I highly recommend this one. I guess there are two seasons so far. Um, but again, set on a college campus. Yeah, I think Kinda TV are the same people who did Carmilla. put out... Yeah, did Carmilla. It's great. It really confused me because I think they changed their name. Mm, yeah, but I think... Yeah, because the actress of Carmilla does a, uh, just a kind of, it's like a TV show or like a, like an interview YouTube channel. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, because it used to be Verve Girl TV. Mm. Yeah, so that's, that's it for our YouTube adaptations. This is a good time for a break. We'll be back right after this. we're back i've got a few other things to mention but i don't think we're going to spend a lot of time chatting about them because we want to get to the wrap-up part of this episode yeah i put a link for a youtube series called and with an e which we will mention again in a second the, the tv series i've not actually oh there's a youtube oh yeah i did see that one i started watching that one and i uh it was of much It was geared toward a much younger audience I couldn't couldn't deal. I spotted it when I was, I think it came up as recommended when I was looking at the Middlemarch series and I thought it looked interesting, but yeah, didn't have time to invest in watching it. There are a bunch of them. Um, Yeah, there's so many. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so you may have seen on YouTube, on Twitter, that the Victorian Scribblers account shared a few months ago um, a fellow Victorianist's YouTube project called A Gay Victorian Affair, which just completed its first season and is working toward its second. This is a Nazi for work content, but you might really enjoy it. It's uh, challenging the notion that um, Victorians were all heteronormative. Um, so yeah, worth a look. Yeah, that looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. I just thought it might be good in our wrapping up to talk about things that we didn't mention or things that like I didn't mention in my episodes or you didn't mention that we wanted to add to each other's lists. Yeah, for sure. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, so a few TV series that I really like that aren't adaptations in a strict sense, but they're, they're neo-Victorian and steampunk remediations of the 19th century. Um, so one that I've really been enjoying is the Victoria series. I, I guess it's by put out by ITV. Um, I think P- PBS here in the U.S., yeah, it's a yeah, I it's um it's a very pernickety distinction, but yeah, that one's by ITV and not BBC. I just assume everything. If they're UK, yeah, it's a fair assumption. Yeah, that one's ITV, which changes it slightly because BBC doesn't have ad breaks, so there's no commercials on BBC. Okay. And ITV does, which is the the thing that makes them slightly different because there will be more natural points where you can break the ads. Interesting. No, that's really cool, especially thinking about like the way in which m- many novels first appeared in the newspaper. They were surrounded by ads and did have those natural breaking points for, not for ad breaks, but for installment breaks. So, I don't know. Just a fascinating form point. Yeah, it's just an interesting slight difference yeah um but i've been really enjoying victoria it's just about her life and her reign and of course it's um not 100 percent accurate but there are a lot of cool things that come up um historically that was a weirdly formatted sentence <laughs> there's a lot of lord melbourne business isn't there yeah. Because this was really yes. popular in the UK. This was one of these, in the TV adaptations episode, I was talking about the TV event, and this was a real TV event. I believe it was broadcast on a Sunday evening, which is mm-hmm. the standard. It's kind of somehow become the standard to broadcast, especially Victorian or period dramas on a Sunday evening, and I mm-hmm. think this was the case with this. Which actually reminds me of another thing that I wanted to mention, which is completely going off script. But there's currently airing an adaptation of Vanity Fair. Interesting. Is that? I think that's BBC. Because I don't actually have a TV that I can watch. I don't have a TV license, so I cannot watch this at my own house. But I can. I was at my parents' on the day the first episode came out because it was my birthday. (laughs) So I watched it with them. I was really impressed by it, actually. I think they, like I was saying with the Middlemarch, I feel like they've really captured the spirits of Thackeray's novel, which is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. No. I, I've i only read part of Vanity Fair because I always decide I'm going to read it at the most inopportune times. Um, but <laughs> it is a, it is an unwieldy thing to adapt, I think. 
trying to remember what channel. All I want to know is what channel it's on, but IMDb does not want to tell me. Mm. Yeah, that that's ITV as well. So ITV and BBC are the big contenders in this, but it is mainly BBC. So if not, if in doubt, and it's British, probably BBC. All I know is they only come available through PBS over here usually, but or on Amazon TV. Um, okay, so next up is Ripper Street. Um, it is a 19th century crime drama that uh, adapts the uh, Whitechapel murders or the Jack the Ripper case, um, and it features a like one of the first forensic. Um, uh, what is the word I'm thinking of? I don't know. A doctor that a doctor that develops forensic techniques in conjunction with the police department. Um, it does feature detectives, which were a Victorian invention. The doctor wears this bottle green jacket that always makes me think about um, arsenic poisoning. <laughs> um, there's also a, um, a bordello, boarding house. I don't know what the Victorians called that. I'm blanking. Um, but a main character who is a madame runs a boarding house. Um, so it's very much like East End adaptation, not a high Victorian culture adaptation, which I actually really appreciate. Yeah, this one's really enjoyable. There was, it's another one like Victoria that was super popular in the UK. And it was, I think the first three series were on BBC mm-hmm. and then it got cancelled. And every, I think there was some kind of petition mm-hmm. to get it reinstated on BBC which which didn't happen but amazon prime picked it up was it amazon i thought it was netflix but i you're probably right no it's definitely it's amazon because i think i signed up for prime specifically to watch river streets okay good i never keep track that makes me think of sorry i'm just going to keep interjecting with other things i think of but if you are into true crime and neo-victorian adaptations this is slightly out of left field but there's a show called whitechapel that I really enjoy. So it's set in modern day London, but it's about a murderer who is deliberately mimicking Jack the Ripper's crimes. Interesting. It's modern day, but if you're interested in the Victorians, it has things for you. There's a wonderful researcher there who kind of lives in the basement and just comes out to tell them about Jack the Ripper and how this relates to history. Very cool. Um, what else? Okay, so Murdoch Mysteries is sort of cozy 19th century mystery set in, I want to say, Toronto. It's in Canada for sure. I want to say Toronto. But it has guest appearances by people like Arthur Conan Doyle and a bunch of sort of like anachronistic often, I think, or, or slightly anachronistic, but basically like this police department in Toronto is inventing all of the things that... Uh, <laughs> become standard detective and police forensic practice or um, tropes in literature in the 19th century. So it's sort of like all happening in Canada. Um, but it's it's great. So basically in the series, um, Detective Murdoch is the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, this is one that I haven't seen. Luckily, I don't have another thing to that it reminds me of. (laughs) It's a great one, though. I highly recommend it. 
I just started watching the next one, Dickensian. Have you? Are you more familiar with it? I have not seen it. I had not heard okay. of it before today, for some reason, okay. somehow. So I'll just say, I don't know. It's it's a, it's a another British show. I don't know what channel puts it out. Um, but it's basically an adaptation. It's, it imagines a universe in which all of Dickens' characters exist at once and interact with each other. And it's set sort of like in the back history of uh, Great Expectations. So you'll meet a young Miss Havisham in the first episodes. That's all I'll say. Ah, uh, yeah, this is BBC. And I remember seeing it advertised when it came out. Again, it came out during a period where I didn't have a TV license. And I was very good and obeyed the law and didn't watch it. But I can remember <laughs> seeing the adverts for it. Yeah, it just came it just became available on Amazon, so I've slowly started watching it, but I'm infuriated because the drama between oh, I forget their names in like their their first names, but in um the backstory of Bleak House, Esther Summerson's mom and sister, like the drama between them appears in early episodes, and I'm just like infuriated by the drama, so I haven't been able to watch anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I think I didn't watch it because I wasn't sure whether I would love or hate it and I wanted to keep I wanted to keep Schrodinger's cat in the box, as it were. Yeah. I mean I've enjoyed it. I think it's a very good quality. I just um like it's dredging up sibling drama and I have a hard time dealing with that sometimes, so I'm just taking it slow. Ah, that's fair enough, yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not the quality of the writing that I'm infuriating at. It's just that it's written oh, no. so well that I'm just like, oh, I'm too invested. I'm going to be too upset by this. Can't. Oh, I might give it another chance. That sounds... I love to get angry at TV. It is a slow burn, but, but Dickens is also a slow burn. So. so up next is Anne with an E, which is an adaptation of Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables. It's a gritty adaptation. One of the writers was a writer on um, the popular U.S. show Breaking Bad, which is a crime show set in New Mexico. It's gotten very polarized reviews. Basically, you either love it or you hate it, and I'm in the camp that absolutely loves it. Um, because if you know, if you've if you've done any reading about Lucy Maud Montgomery's life, um, it was much less rosy and idealized than the novel she created. And so the this series sort of brings a more true aspect of what life would have been like for a character like Anne into the story. And I think it really opens up uh, character relationships um, and sort of ties the work more directly into big issues of the late 19th century. Oh, that's interesting. So I think the next one kind of goes hand in hand with that. So I've added two Netflix shows as our kind of last TV shows to discuss. I actually haven't seen this one. It's the adaptation of Margaret Atwood's book, Alias Grace. I don't know if you've watched this, Courtney. No, I haven't either. So we're both really badly placed to discuss this, but this is... <laughs> It was a similar thing where I was really reluctant to watch an adaptation of a book that I love because I'm a huge hypocrite after preaching in the episode about TV series where I was saying, oh, you've got to separate the adaptation from the book. But I was really nervous about watching this, but I'm definitely going to give it a chance. I can't say much more without having watched it, but 
as a book, as a kind of neo-Victorian book, I would highly recommend it. So the plot basically is about the story of a Canadian murderer in the 19th century and Margaret Atwood follows her story when she's in prison being interviewed by a psychologist explaining what happened and why and it's a really interesting look at Mm. psychology and poverty. She's a young Irish immigrant who doesn't have a lot of money. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. Highly recommend I'll have to check that out. I didn't even know it was neo-Victorian. I just thought it was like a CIA thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's um, it's based on a true story. It's one of those interesting ones that takes a true story. And I think Margaret Atwood's basically thought no one really knows that much about Grace Marks or how she got to this point or what happened in her life. So she's imagined that for her. And it's Margaret Atwood, so it's going to be good no matter what. Yeah, exactly. I finished reading it and I think I went home and just handed it to my mum, who also is, you might have noticed a pattern, is also really interested in crime fiction and true crime. So I was like, mum, you've got to read this. Which, yeah, quite much is a pattern of crime. My final recommendation is similarly crime adjacent. It's the Alienist, the adaptation of the Neo-Victorian novel series. Yeah, so I haven't read the books and I quite enjoyed the series. It's a good one to just put on and because it's Netflix, the next one plays and then the next one. It's quite enjoyable. But I do have a friend who has read all of the books and said it was not a very faithful adaptation. So I think if you've read the books and you go in with that pre-warning, you might enjoy it. Sometimes I watch the the film or TV adaptations first and then read the books so it doesn't ruin the book for me. So I might do that here. Yeah, there's a whole series. And actually the author has made a website and it has like all of the characters' biographies because I'm one of those people who when I watch a TV show and enjoy it, I have to find out every single fact about it which is another reason why I haven't watched a lot of them. I could see that. <laughs> That's a good reason. But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating website and you find out a lot of all the different backstories. is really interesting. Oh, the, the website's called 17th Street. So I'll link that in the show notes as well. Okay, sounds good. Um, This has reminded me just quickly of another series that I haven't watched, but I've heard about. It's called Quacks, and it's about quack doctors in the 19th century. This reminds me of another TV series, which at undergrad, my friends and I were obsessed with, which is slightly, it's 19th century rather than Victorian, slightly before the Victorian era, but Desperate Romantics. Hmm which is a six-part BBC drama about the Pre-Raphaelites. Ooh. I might have to rewatch that. Yeah, it's great. That sounds great. That's also really appropriate considering what went on in our miniseries this summer with the Pre-Raphaelites. Yeah, the Pre-Raphaelites just get involved. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if that got you interested in the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, then would definitely recommend Desperate Romantics. There's also a completely going on a tangent now. 
on the subject of romantics there is a film about John Keats called Bright Star that is very good and I would highly recommend. So it's Keats's romance with Fanny Braun. Fascinating. Yeah, so now listeners, we've just basically scheduled your next year of media consumption. (laughs) (laughs) Or next two weekends, depending on how much you marathon watch things. Depending on if you've got a dissertation to write and need to desperately clean your house while watching Netflix. Which is not, if any of my supervisors are listening, is not what I do. I uh, do my, I, I watch TV while I do the dishes to like bribe myself to do the dishes. And that's when I do like the good bulk of TV watching. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So yeah, we've given you so many recommendations. Mm-hmm. So as we wrap up our wrap up miniseries episode... Um, I just want to shout out again to our wonderful guests this summer, Katie Jola Riviere, Ben Mags, and Dr. Anna Waker. They brought their knowledge and joy and passion about these subjects to the table, and it was just a blast chatting with them, and I hope that it was as much of a blast listening to our conversations as it was having them. I feel like I learned so much in this miniseries. It was nice because I traveled to London and got to see a lot of the um, paintings we were talking about in person. So it was just doubly enriching for me. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to say, if we can talk about ourselves for a little while, maybe we can recap where exactly we've been. I know I mentioned Mm -hmm. right at the top of the show that we were in the same time zone for about, was it a week? I think so. Yeah. So we actually swapped and Courtney came to the UK while I was in the States. Mm-hmm. I was in Los Angeles for a couple of weeks and then New York, which is so good. Yeah. How did that go? Can you give us a little context of, of what you were, why you were traveling? Yeah. So I was in Los Angeles because they actually, and relevant to our series earlier and later, UCLA have the bulk of the Trollope family papers so they have all of their letters so many so many wonderful documents uh, which is really great found a lot of useful sources for my dissertation a lot of letters that really show their personalities really well and are really funny so that was super useful that's why I was in Los Angeles and then in yeah New York have a lot of the other manuscripts relating to Francis Eleanor and Francis Milton Trollope. I also, while I was there, got my hands on the manuscript for George Eliot's Scenes of Clerical Life, which was kind of an ultimate fangirl moment. Mm. I had to pinch myself that I was actually there looking at it. It was incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, and then I rounded off my trip in New York with my brother's wedding because he lives there. Oh wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really nice to kind of do my research and then for the last week at the end all my family came over and we had a really lovely time that sounds amazing i've still never been to new york so (laughs) yeah i i kind of was recommending to everyone that i saw but new york public library is definitely a site to go and see i mean i I know a lot of people would be like go to broadway or go shopping on fifth avenue i'm like no Mm -hmm. go to new york public library it's beautiful i think it's an incredible monument that they 
had a block right in the center of this huge city and they said no we're gonna dedicate this to a library yeah i love that and i know that um just the people i've met who work there or work near there um at rare book school and other places that i've traveled and met and got to hang out with a bunch of amazing librarians and archivists they all say not only is the main branch amazing but there are a lot of wonderful um smaller branches around new york city that have different sort of foci that are worth exploring as well yeah definitely the other place i went in 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 new york is the morgan library which is was the private library of jp morgan the banker Mm -hmm. and that's a really fascinating place and i actually um I was doing some research in the Morgan the day after England got kicked out of the World Cup. (laughs) And it's just one of the funniest stories because people would hear my accent and then come up to me and say, I'm so sorry. And it (laughs) took me so long to figure out why they were sorry. Oh, that's funny. So that's my travels and research. But you came over here, didn't you? Yeah, I got to hang out in mostly in Bloomsbury um, for... A little over a week and I had high ambitions as those of you who have been listening along know of doing sort of a um, audio diary but um, between jet lag and the time difference and trying to do as much as I could that didn't quite materialize unfortunately but I got to do lots of things like explore the British Museum and do a little bit of research in the British Library and eat all the food and it was amazing um, I was here I was there Uh, for the Victorian Popular Fiction Association conference and then did a little bit of digging for my the final dissertation chapter that I need to write um, on this obscure little novel called Hagar of the Pawn Shop by Fergus Hume so that's great. I've been going to London semi-regularly for maybe 15 years and there's still a lot that I haven't done. Yeah it's sort of overwhelming like usually when I travel I can plan what I need to do or what I want to do very easily, but there is just so much that you could do that just making the choices and trying to prioritize things on a first trip to London is, um, yeah, overwhelming. Yeah. (laughs) That, that's an understatement, I think. I felt kind of guilty sending you my recommendations because I was like, you've got so many things, so many options that you absolutely must go. Oh, it was, it was great. I um went twice to the Temple of Satan at Camden. Yes. And uh, it was walking distance from where I was staying, my little Airbnb across from uh, St. Pancras Station. And um yeah, I have never had better mac and cheese in my life. And it was vegan mac and cheese. I was going to say, I don't want our listeners to think I was giving you cultural recommendations. It was all, here's the vegan junk food. No, but I needed that so much. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, because like Bloomsbury, there's a bajillion cultural things to do and many of them are quite obvious. So, but like there were less obvious things. And also the walk to that restaurant is past um, the old St. Pancras Church and, and cemetery, which is where Mary Wollstonecraft is buried. So I got to see her grave too. And William Godwin. Oh, huh, that's really cool. So that was our summer, working on dissertations, traveling, switching off episodes. Is there anything else that we need to cover? I, I don't think so. I think that's a good roundup. Yeah, that in a nutshell. Okay, so um, 
you can expect the next episode of our season two episodes at the end of October, um, on October 26th, which is actually my birthday. So to help me celebrate, of course, listen to the episode, but subscribe, review, share the podcast, and um, let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook or email. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and I guess one last thing is that I've made some updates to the website. It's got a fresh new look, but also you can now search episodes by season and um, our season two page has a little sneak peek of what you can expect in our December episode. That's super exciting. Yeah. And thank you for taking the time to do that. Of course. Also, a reminder, if you've not checked out the website for a while, I would highly recommend checking out the merch page on the website because there's a lot of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to buy it all for myself, but that defeats the purpose. <laughs> oh, I know, me too. There's, a, there's one shirt you've made that says something about Dickens. I can't even remember what it is off the top of my head. The swag page. Oh, yeah. It's a quote from one of our episodes. It's, it's Karma oh, Dickens. Yes. Yeah, it's Karma Dickens. I, I was trying to remember which of us said that, but... Yeah, I think it was one of our Christmas episodes last year. Strongly recommend checking it out that. We've got some fun stuff on there. Yeah, so that's it for our, our mini-series. Thanks for listening. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. John J. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the Ball